Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. Globally, democracy is in recession. In the United States, it is in crisis. In Canada, it is at best plotting, complacent, and exclusionary. The social, political, and economic order that so many have taken for granted for so long now faces upheaval. Some believe that shift is long overdue, but alternatives driven by authoritarian populism and other toxic varieties of self-government threaten to usher in something far worse. Regardless, the status quo is untenable. Those who wish to preserve liberal democracy thus face a challenge. They must find a way to adapt the system in the face of growing counter-pressures and changing technologies, attitudes, and priorities. So, what does the future hold for liberal democracy? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Manuel Hines, former Minister of Finance in El Salvador, former Division Chief at the World Bank, and author of In Defense of Liberal Democracy, What We Need to Do to Heal a Divided America. Let's start by assessing the state of liberal democracy in, in the United States, Canada, and globally. Your book is, is primarily about the United States, but I think what you're writing about applies certainly to Canada and to, to other liberal democracies. Uh, what's your assessment of the health of our political and economic and social institutions that, that are fundamental to liberalism? Yes. Um, I think that there are, there are two uh, crucial components of liberal democracy. One is... Uh, the you, ha, you you need democracy you know uh, a government of the people for the people by the people uh, in order to work but of course there is the the, the problem that the majority can establish um, a dictatorship and then you have to defend against that and that is a second component uh, which is the rights of the individual you know so that Nobody, no, no, not any majority can violate your individual rights. And actually, I said, I said two, but uh, maybe uh, there are three crucial components. You know, the other one, which uh, I read your book, you know, and, <laughs> and actually you you give a lot of importance to this third part, which is discussion. You know the. Mm -hmm. I think the, the the discussion, the debating, uh, the the uh, your decisions in a good way uh, is is also essential for uh, for liberal democracy. And actually, you know, I think that Canada is in a way one of the top examples of a very good democracy. You know, I I. I uh, I, of course, am not idealizing Canada. I know every country has a lot of problems, you know, and history has been evolving in Canada as it has in Europe, in the United States, and so on. But if you look, even the independence of Canada, it was the result of a very interesting discussion between 20, 25 individuals, you know, the leaders of Canada got together in an island, in Prince Edward Island, and they decided that it was a very good idea to create Canada. And for very interesting reasons, you know, including the French, they wanted this, 
because they thought that this is uh, creating a federation was the best way of having uh, to defend their cultural values and their, you know, the, the, the Frenchness. Uh, and at the same time, the British were, were thinking, this is the only way in which we can survive as a country if we are all together and we form this confederation. And if you see in Canada also, the it, it is very important. You know, I, I laugh a lot at this because my son-in-law, and my my uh, two of my grandchildren are Canadians, you know. So I laugh when they say that Canadians are uh, boring, you know, which is not true, you know. But the important, but they say that because Canada is focused on their own democracy, their local democracy. What, and this is what they have been doing through the last 150 years, you know, which is improving uh, their own relationships and so on. They, they didn't start with uh, one of these uh, uh, image, uh, myths of domination over other countries or, you know, it, 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 they say it's boring because actually they discuss everything, you know, and they come oh, yeah. and, they, and Canada comes to very peaceful, arrangements you know externally the one the one uh, big note on that is internally the the country w- was founded on, on on indigenous dispossession and genocide and one of the things that we're grappling with in Canada now and have been for a long time but it's it's becoming much more common to discuss uh, uh, in the broad broader public is that sort of ongoing settler uh, colonialism and one of the things we're trying to to deal with now is is a, that's not just a legacy, but it's it's also an ongoing present issue. And I wonder when we think about the the liberal democratic order, how we can grapple with you know not not just external challenges and, and our external history, but our internal history too. And how do we then you know make the system? F- uh, can we make the system workable? In the context of, say, having dispossessed uh, indigenous peoples um, on, on whose land we, for instance, still exist, right? Yes. Uh, some of some of which some of that land being unceded. Yeah, but you know, what, one of the things I, I mentioned in in my book is that you know challenges. All societies are facing challenges, and 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 the challenges, if you see, not just in the history of countries but of civilizations, uh, Arnold Toynbee. Uh, wrote about this a lot, the, the British historian. And uh, uh, the challenges go from the outside to the inside. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of a natural process of development in a society that is really progressing. Uh, first, you have to, to, to defeat the, the cold, you know, <laughs> 30 uh, below zero, okay? You conquer that, then you establish a place that is, is secure, and then uh, uh, going to the Industrial Revolution, and the Industrial Revolution uh, multiply the power of the Moscow. Now we are going through the connectivity revolution, or the information uh, revolution, but I prefer connectivity, which basically, you know, and, and this is something you, you, you emphasize in your book also, 
the thing is that we are coming together very close, you know, in a way that we never had been. It's uh, uh, the, uh, the new connectivity uh, is opening a communication between people at the other end of the world, but also inside your own community. And we are kind of exposed to, to everybody through the networks, through the uh, Facebook, through all these kind of uh, the social uh, networks and so on. Uh, and, and the continuous uh, flow of news and so on. So uh, in this moment, we are facing uh, inside us to see how we can really relate to the people who are around us, you know, in a, in, in a way in which, uh, let's say 100 years ago, we could be more a little, uh, uh, we could ignore a lot of this. Now we cannot, you know, now we have to face diversity. We have to face uh, uh, the the problems of the collectivity in a way uh, with an intimacy that we were not forced to do uh, before, uh, and that is what you are telling me. You know, it's a uh, uh, Canada is going from the external uh, challenges to the internal challenge of making a very diverse society work in a in an honest way you know it's uh not, not just with words but but really taking advantage of diversity i think that canada has made tremendous progress in that dimension by the way you know it's uh, uh one of the things i i also i i think is very important for democracy which you also mentioned in your book is that if you want a democracy to work, it has to work. You know, if it is going to remain our system, then it has to produce results. And, and there, is, there, is a, there is an issue which I find uh, crucial, which in, the, in, in, in Canada, you are way ahead, you know, and the United States is not, and many other countries are not, which is, you know, in the, during the Industrial Revolution, you could say, first, we are going to produce wealth, and then we are going to see how we are going to distribute it so that everybody enjoys the benefits of progress. Mm -hmm. yeah, that means, you know, that then education, first we are going to produce the money to educate the population. First we are going to produce the money to eventually improve the health of the, of the population. Now we are going into the knowledge economy. You know, it's, it's, it's the big difference. Like I said, the, the Industrial Revolution multiplied the, the, the powers of Moscow. Now we have the the connectivity, which is multiplying the power of the mind. So, you know, in order to produce high value added, in order to really progress, you need education. So the order of this equation has changed. 
Now, if you want to produce, first you have to educate your people. First, you, you need a, a, a very healthy uh, uh, population. And, and Canada, you know, back in the second half of the, the 20th century, Canada went into this uh, health, a national health system, you know, in which mm -hmm. everybody has access, you know, to, to, to health. And also you have a very, a very accessible educational system, you know, so that anybody in Canada can, can, can uh, uh, find a way to, to obtain a very good education. Those are, I think, you know, essential for the adaptation of this new, uh, of, of this new technological revolution. You know, the, uh, the countries that do not invest in the health of their people and education, they are going to lag uh, behind the others. Uh, you write about this in your book. I mean, you, you, you talk about this contemporary technical, uh, technological revolution. And I mean, looking at the connectivity revolution, I mean, one of the things we see is that all of a sudden political issues are now being put on the mainstream agenda that were were kept off in a lot of ways in, in previous times. You know, a lot of, exactly. of movement on, on new social movements, on in, indigenous reconciliation and consciousness raising, uh, you know, LGBTQ communities, uh, dis disability communities, uh, push, pushing back against poverty and so on and so forth. And, and there's, there's a presence that's, that's growing in ways it hasn't for a long time. The other side of that, of course, is the sort of toxic, uh, you know, author populist authoritarianism, uh, far right extremist pushback that's happening. And, you know, Canada's seen plenty of this. The United States has certainly seen plenty of this. We see it in Europe. Uh, you know, neo-Nazis are, are flourishing in many jurisdictions. How do you then balance? What's the, prop the appropriate response to that? Because the other side of this connectivity revolution is these toxic undercurrents that threaten uh, what, what you might see as progress, but is corrosive, left as is. I mean, how do, we, how do you push back against that? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's, as you say, it's, it's corrosive. And I think it has this, we can see this as opening the Pandora's box, you know. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's coming from every place. Uh, this, uh, and if you see, for example, in, in the case of the United States, it's difficult to find one single important issue which doesn't split the country in halves, in two halves. You know, it's uh, it's it's incredible. Everything, you know, it, they, they have to, uh, they, they have a, a trial of, of some guy, uh, 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 this uh, this producer of movies, and then half and half, uh, or you you have uh, any 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 anything, the election half and half. Uh, it's 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 extremely extremely corrosive. You know, but then, you know, uh, I think it ha this has to do with, in part, with the uh, technological revolution, because one part of this problem, or one aspect of this problem, is that a technological revolution uh, splits society in two. There are people who 
take advantage of the uh, technological revolution very fast, mm-hmm. you know, and they be- become incredibly rich. You know, this happened in, 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 in during the Industrial Revolution in the Gilded Age, you know, mm-hmm. in the United States, for example, or in Canada, you know, you had never seen people as rich as the people uh, as Carnegie, for example, Andrew Carnegie or uh, Rockefeller and so on. Uh, and this, this was completely different from the world that existed at the time of independence in the United States. But also it happened in, 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 in Canada, you know, mm-hmm. you, you saw these uh, very rich people emerging. And then, uh, you know, during the second half of the, of the 20th century, uh, the revolution, the Industrial Revolution had ended. It is not that, you know, there were not industrial, new industrial products coming into, into line, but it was that they were not already that revolutionary. They were not changing, you know, they, they were not based on, on, on having a lot of people uh, from the rural areas having to go to the cities. Uh, all these changes had already taken place after World War II. And then, you know, the thing calmed down and then the, the distribution of income became much more equalitarian, even in the United States. But now this is happening again. You know, you, you see this equivalent of Andrew Carnegie, like uh, uh, Jeff Bezos and, and Elon Musk and so on, because these people are taking advantage of these uh, possibilities of innovation and they are taking the lead of that. But there are mm. many people who are left behind, you know? And this, this is a splitting society. And then you cannot allow this to happen. And this, this, uh, 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 that's why I think that education and health has to be very, very important in this moment. Something as revolutionary as you did in the second half of the, the uh, 20th century without uh, having a crisis as they have now in the United States and, and in many other countries, you know? So I think it is, uh, that's, one of the most important things uh, has to do with that. Uh, And so you have to uh, address these very objective uh, problems, but there are these objective problems as well. Do you remember this uh, Walter Beishot? He was one of the editors Mm -hmm. (laughs) and he wrote a a book, uh, which is very interesting called the, the, the English Constitution, I think is the name of the book. And then he discusses a monarchy and he says, do not let light to go into the royal family. You know, it's uh, because then, you know, the magic of the royal family will disappear, okay? And then, you know, I, I see this not just as the royal family, you know, there are so many things that do not, uh, uh, that they, they have been a little fussy, a little hazy, you know, in the past. And now suddenly you see all these politicians and they discover everything about a politician. And they discovered that 25 years ago, they went to a, a party and they drank too much and they did something. These kind of things, you know, people have to learn to absorb. 
it is more or less like what happened with the yellow press. Do you remember that 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 happened in the during the industrial revolution? You know, it's a uh, it's really uh, a, people have to mature and then they have to learn how to live in a more transparent world and accepting things that were not accepted before, not corruption, you know, because sometimes these things are not corruption or are not bad behavior, you know, but they have to understand that we are all human and understand that we all have uh, uh, many things that uh, we have done that we don't like uh, and uh, get back to some measure of privacy to the people who work in the... I, I think this is going to happen. You know, people will get bored of all these scandals every day, you know? But there's, there's got to be a balance, right? I mean, there's, there are some things we can say, uh, that's too far, that's too much, that, that it is beyond reason to forgive or forget. Uh, that, you know, we have to have the wisdom to know what is yeah. something stupid, something someone young does that, you know, you yourself may have done in an era before social media existed versus, okay, this was truly abhorrent and you need to be held to account for that and so on. Because a lot of people get away with things. They're, not, they're never held to account for these abhorrent things that they exactly. do. And so that, I mean, to me, it's the, the wisdom is knowing where that line is, right? And and one of the concerns that I have is that we're, we're very bad at that. And, and so we, we risk, for one, you know, applying a double standard to to women and to racialized people that we don't apply to, exactly. uh, you know, white men. Uh, but two, also, um, you know, encouraging <laughs> politicians to be so unbelievably anodyne, you know, and brushed aluminum that they've got no, uh, it seems that they, they, they have, you know, they're unwilling to take a risk and to just, you know, say something bold for fear of, of, of upsetting uh, people, right? And and I think, you know, how do we develop that that wisdom to know where the line is and, and how to, you know, to draw appropriate yeah. Uh, yeah. Because, uh, because recrimination same. or punishment or whatever it might be? Because yeah. we haven't, I don't think we've wrapped our head around it yet, Yeah, you know, in the social media era. It's, it's, it's you know, it, it, we will have to find that uh, balance, you know, because uh, in a you know, in this new world that has been created in the last few years uh, because of these scandals, is that just the people who are shameless are the ones that right. will get into politics. You know? Yeah. Yes. And then, and then you have, then you have uh, a, a Trump saying, "I could kill anybody in Fifth Avenue, and nothing is going to happen to me." You know. This is so. This is the other concern: is that. Like you say, you either have someone who pretends they have no history and has never said anything controversial and has never had an independent thought, or like you say, you have someone utterly shameless who says, oh, I don't care what the mainstream says. I'm different. I'm pushing back against that. I'm not going to be silenced. And they, they seem to get away with everything, which is yes. which is the, the flip side of that, right? Is, is the problem with Trump is he truly got away with abhorrent things that we, we want to hold exactly. someone to account for. Exactly. Um, you know, and yeah. and and then and and then, like you said, I mean, it, it really does polarize in the sense because then it becomes those who are on Team Trump and who will forgive anything, and those who are not, uh, and and 
you know, I was, when you were saying earlier that everything splits into 50-50, I mean, it truly, you have these abhorrent people and abhorrent acts, and they do end up with their followers and defenders who become cult-like in their defense of that person because they see it as an example of a broader assault on, on their freedom or, or, or their, you know, their, their power or whatever it might be. And, and I wonder, you know, how do, how do we process that in a, in a contemporary liberal democracy is, you know, what are the, what are the mechanisms by which we, we, we manage that without, you know, inciting uh, violence or inciting, uh, you know, toxic online discourse. I, I, I sometimes wonder if we're built for that, you know, whether or not that's something we can even do. Yeah. You know, one of the, it, one thing that really worries me is that in, if you look at the past uh, and you think of the 1930s, and actually I think that we look like the 1930s in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, uh, there was a lot of division, internal division in many of the democratic countries. You know, there, there was a lot of them in, in, in terms of classes and so on. And uh, they never went to the chaos uh, that overtook Germany, for example, or Russia, you know, which to me, the problem is when you a country goes into chaos, people prefer a dictatorship than chaos. And then right. they, they, you know, uh, but but even so, in the United States, if you remember, uh, in uh, of course you are young, uh, uh, but uh, I don't remember either. But <laughs> but I remember reading, you know, as, uh, in the United States, you had all these uh, populists in the sense that they, they were people who were given importance just to appearances and not to realities and, and, and so on, okay? And it was very difficult to manage the United States during those years. I, I think that, you know, one uh, that, that Roosevelt was able to, uh, he was a, a great statesman. You know, I don't think that he was a great economist, but he was a great statesman. <laughs> and he kept the United States together and, and actually changed the institutions of the country so that contrary to what many people thought, you know, I think he was crucial to, to, uh, for the United States to retain liberal democracy and capitalism, you know, because through these social uh, measures, social security and so on, he actually made the economy and the country more flexible, you know, because... <clears throat> uh, in the in the throes of the of, of the depression, if you didn't help people, people could have gone into chaos, and then everything would have been destroyed. And then the same thing happened after the war. These institutions that he created actually made uh, the economy flexible enough so that when a recession came, you and people uh, was uh, unemployed. That didn't result in people starving to death, you know. So uh, 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 he was uh, very intelligent in in, in doing this. And but but then this flexibility is necessary in this moment. You know, you have to to look at at uh, at that there are th- threats internal and external. And if you keep being divided, 
if you allow your country to be uh, split by all these things, then you know you won't be ready to face these problems. And one example, one external example is what is happening with Ukraine now, and what is happening may happen in Taiwan as well. You know, Putin is looking at the United States and Europe, and, and, and he's thinking the same thing that Hitler and other of these guys thought. You know, they are weak now because they are split in the middle. You know, they are not going to be strong enough to stop me. So I'm going to act right now. So it, it, eventually people will start saying, okay, there are very important things, but let's not fight for things that are not crucial to our survival so that we can really solve these problems through, uh, we can solve these problems through discussion, debating and so on, give some time. You, you mentioned this, you need time to discuss these things. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you need uh, some serenity in looking at these things. Let's not say we have to solve this problem today. Let's start discussing this. Let's, uh, let, let, let's develop a solution to this. And, and because if we split, these problems are going to destroy liberal democracies not 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 liberal democracy i'm saying liberal some liberal democracies could be destroyed externally because a putin will say well i'm going to take ukraine and then i'm going to take estonia or i'm going to take uh, any of lithuania or any of these other countries or we are, I'm going to say that uh, Sweden or Finland cannot be um, members of uh, NATO also. Uh, so uh, the, uh, I am worried that something bad has to happen for people to say, no, wait, don't fight each other. You know, let's find a way to really uh, solve these problems but we have to face the real problems that may come from the outside. So that the, the line, that will draw the line, I think. There will, I hope that the line it doesn't come too late. Well, I mean, one of the, this makes me think of, of one of the points that were circulating in the Trump years that I don't think people fully appreciated, which is that, you know, it was easy to blame Russia as the boogeyman uh, for all of the United States' problem, you know, it was Russia, it was Russia, it was Russia. When in fact, you know, the, the, many of the problems that came from the United States were internal problems of internal divisions that exactly. run deep in that country. That, you know, from a global geopolitics, realpolitik perspective, I don't know what you want to call them, adversaries of the United States or those competitors of the United States saw an opportunity to take an advantage to, to secure their own well-being, right? And, and it was an exploitation of, of internal problems in the United States that... Uh, you know, I, I some in some sense, Russia just had to wait. You know, the United States was doing that work for their adversaries or their competitors or whatever you want to call them. Which brings me to the question of the global order. The internal coherence of, of liberal democracies relies in some part on the external global order. And I'm wondering if the, the current order is, is tenable. I mean, you mentioned challenges from Russia, obviously challenges from China, uh, challenges from um, states that, that reject the, the liberal world order, reject liberal democracy. 
where do you see that going in, in the years to come, uh, especially looking at focal points like Taiwan and, and Ukraine, which are, are, are you know, potential points of skirmish or yeah. worse? Yeah, it's, uh, well, you know, I, I think that this can be avoided. You know, of course, mm -hmm. you know, the, I think it is, you have to be very realistic in terms of uh, a, a international politics. You know, it, I think it is, it is impossible to, to reach uh, a point where the liberal democracies will convince China or Russia they have to, that they have to become liberal democracies. You know, that's, that I think is, is unrealistic. They are not going to do that. Right. The point I, I think that is very important is that uh, number one, uh, you have to be very pragmatic, not ideological in this. You know, it's number mm -hmm. one. Uh, number two, you have to say, well, they have the right, because I think, you know, that each country has the government they deserve, okay? Well, the Chinese, they have this government, and, and the Russians, they have this government. All right. Uh, uh, that, that's part of the world we have to live with, okay? There's no there's no question that we are going to, to turn uh, Putin into into a, a, a democrat or because russia is not democratic the russians are not democratic you know they 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 they, they don't have these these values of discussion they don't have this the spirit that moves them is not the spirit you know of uh, let's say the big discussion that took place in canada when they decided okay yes we are going to uh, uh, this was in Saskatchewan that it, uh, that started the health system. I think uh, it's a uh, we are going to adopt something like that, you know, for the entire country. That that is not going to happen in 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 Russia, okay? But but there are different ways in which the differences with Russia uh, can be resolved. In this in this thing, in this thing about Ukraine. It, it is very clear that uh, Putin is facing a, a very difficult situation. You know, uh, the, the situation is that he is seeing the West advancing much faster than Russia in, in, in economically and in many of the, uh, of the more advanced technologies. They, they are very good you know, in communications, in, 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 in creating distortions and so on, but they are way behind in many, in many other uh, manifestations of technology. So I think that Russia thinks uh, we are being left behind. And if we are left behind, then they are going to do something very bad to us. Okay. Uh, I think that I don't know exactly how it happened, you know, but I, I saw this I, in the 1980s and early 1990s. I was working with the World Bank and I worked with Russia and Russia collapsed, you know, and mm -hmm. it, it was not that the people in Russia 
decided, no, we don't want communism, we want liberal democracy. No, no, they didn't have the least idea of these things. Uh, they, the system was really, it, it really collapsed on them. You know, it's a, 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 there was a moment, you know, in that even the currency was absolutely worthless. In, in Moscow, I, I, I paid my taxi with uh, uh, cigarettes, you know, American cigarettes, mm. what kind of a currency. And also uh, the dollar circulated. Uh, so, but then there was something that was done by the Western countries, which because I was afraid, I say, you know, this, is, this could happen here in Russia. You know, they're seeing that they are uh, being, uh, uh, they are collapsing. And then the army or or the KGB and, and, and the institutions that still survive, they could try to, they, they could go into a panic attack, you know? And, and then uh, this could become a dangerous situation because they are going to say, well, the United States will take advantage of this and the Europeans and so on. But for some reason, you know, which I think it's uh, interesting, uh, the the Soviet Union collapsed, but this did not happen, you know. And actually, the United States and Europe did not take advantage of the collapse of Russia. On the contrary, they helped Russia in this moment. So I think that you know, if you can uh, do something like that, uh, that could be a, a that could be a solution. But I don't know if what I'm saying is absolutely naive, you know, because because uh, Putin is already embarked in a in a in, in a, a but this requires also firmness from from the side of the United States and Europe but also understanding what is the political situation of uh, of Putin uh, and maybe there are some ways in which you can uh, help uh, him to obtain a certain stability that he's not going or security that he's not going to be destroyed, uh, but within a, a, a framework in which he's not going to to attack. It's, it's Russia is not going to attack its neighbors. You know, this is the first time in in one century since Hitler, since the the, the 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 early times of the communists, that a country is attacking other country nakedly to gain territory, you know? That was Crimea. It, it certainly requires a restraint. I mean, I, I mean, the one of the things that concerns me and sort of coming to time, so I'll close off on this point, is that it, you know, the, the, the West, uh, I, I'm not defending Russian aggression at all. I mean, I, I think part of the problem on the left is that there's, a, there's, a, there's an affinity for Russian aggression that is, problematic. But one of the things that worries me is that there's a sort of guns of August mentality in some quarters yes. in the West yes. where everyone wants to mobilize and get ready for war. And at some point it's you've you've committed before you even know you've committed and off you go. I mean it's, it's in some ways vaguely reminiscent of World War One. And I, I you know th that requires on our part a restraint that I think some are not uh, exercising at this time. 
Absolutely. I agree. I agree. That, that's what I think. That's what I was trying to, 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 to get to, you know, of seeing how to reintroduce serenity in this discussion, understanding what they want, and, and then diffusing this thing, you know, mm -hmm. because I agree. I, I have thought several times looking at this, this really looks like August 1914. Yes. Yeah, it, it does. And I mean, it's not like there's no precedent for this. I mean, again, I don't want to oversimplify and I certainly don't want to romanticize the 20th century and the Cold War history of the United States. But, yeah. you know, the the Cuban Missile Crisis looked like it was a moment where there could be conventional or even nuclear war and it was diffused. I mean, these things can be diffused and they have yeah, been diffused in be the diffused. past. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Because uh, ultimately no one's served by that. I mean, it's... it's yeah. Because we think that this is unthinkable, but it it may happen. It's unthinkable, yes. but it may happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, if anything, we've learned in, in the last several years that the unthinkable can and does happen. I mean, we're living it right now, every day. <laughs> yeah, I'm reading a novel right now, and it's the, one of the premises of the novel is that there's a biological threat, and they're sort of discussing what could happen if a new pandemic launched, and the novel is from the 1990s, and... Uh, you know, reading it now, I just keep thinking um, what seemed impossible and unthinkable in 1997 is just sort of our day-to-day -day life now. <laughs> right? yeah. it's, uh, and, and, and it can happen before you know it. Just one day you wake up and there it is. Um, well, that, that brings us to time. I think that's a powerful note on, on which to end. So I, I want to thank you very much for joining me today for this discussion. It was, it was uh, fascinating. Oh, David, it has been for me a, a real pleasure. I, I, I didn't realize that we have, you know, the time had advanced. You know, it's, a, <laughs> it's, a, it's really very nice to discuss these things with someone like you. Uh, and same to you. And so once more, my thanks to you for joining me today. And, and as always, my thank you uh, to Carolyn Smith and to Aaron Reynolds to make the show not just possible, but far better than it would be without them. Uh, the book, by the way, is In Defense of Liberal Democracy. You can pick it up just about anywhere. And uh, thanks once more. And we'll see you back here in a couple weeks. <laughs>